gospel is a very particular word or kind of speech in the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, the gospel is God's promise of a son who will crush the serpent's head, forgive the sins of his people, raise them from the dead, and give them everlasting life solely on the basis of his grace for the sake of Christ. If you're interested in the, the beginnings of the church, you know, I think looking at the creed is a great way of, of getting into church history and really seeing where the faith kind of came together. In the scripture, the way it presents discernment is actually the skill that you develop where you're able to identify goodness. And what was surprising to me is that is much the way we use the language of discernment outside of the church. The real difference, I would say, like what patriarchy teaches versus what we should believe is that what they believe about the nature of men and women, that there is something fundamentally different about authority and submission between men and women. And that's not just like within particular relationships, but men and women in general. This is their nature. What are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man. The Gospel never tells us something to do. The Gospel tells us about something that's been done. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals, and I am Colleen Sharp, and Rachel Miller is my co-host, and today we are going to be talking about marriage. And so I'm sure if you've been listening this month, we've kind of hit a theme of issues of manhood and womanhood. Um, A lot of it Rachel has talked about in her recent book, Beyond Authority and Submission. And these are topics that we get questions about all the time. And I think in our circles, there's so many different views and a lot of different things things being discussed right now. And so really want to talk about marriage specifically and where it fits into this conversation. Some of the things that are being taught out there that maybe aren't biblical, but we hear them. I actually think of myself when I was young wife, new in reform circles, and I'd hear things and I would think, oh, that sounds good. Not realizing that it's not biblical. My husband would say, yeah, that I don't think that's really biblical, Colleen. So Thanks to him for helping me think through some of this stuff. So let's start with talking about the purpose of marriage. And um, really, yeah, what's the purpose of marriage? I'll let you start, Rachel. Um, When I was doing the research for the book, there really are a lot of different ways that people talk about marriage uh, within uh, conservative Christian circles. And some a lot of them, like you said, sound really good on the surface, but then when you get down to it and you get kind of trying to apply that, you realize that there are weaknesses in these arguments and these discussions. And I will say that I think a lot of the weaknesses come from an overemphasis on one aspect or another, so that you know it, it said like you know marriage is always about this one thing. Right. And I think that's where a lot of the the weaknesses come. So as we talk about this, I want to be clear. I think that there is some truth in a lot of these issues and a lot of these ways that marriage is described. But I think that uh, as a bigger picture, it's missing something. Yeah. And we know. Okay, let's just start. We know from Ephesians 5 
Okay, we see the picture of of Christ in the church right. um, in marriage. So let's start. And I know that some people take that and they kind of overemphasize it and pull things out of it that maybe aren't there in the way that you were talking about pulling out one thing. Right. What is often said, or what I've read a lot, is that marriage is supposed to be a picture of the gospel or a parable of the gospel uh, and and enacting out of uh, Christ in the church. And uh, you'll have some people say, uh, for example, there's a quote that Adam and Eve were created to represent the relationship of Christ in the church, and that's what all marriages are supposed to do. Or another quote, that God designed marriage to dazzle the cosmos through the union of Christ and the church. Uh, or each and every marriage is supposed to be an enacted parable of the gospel. Right? So that, that emphasis on our marriages are meant to, um, to image Christ in the church for the world so that they see the gospel through our marriage. And first off, I want to say it's a lot of weight to put on people in their marriages. Uh, but beyond that, I think it's important to realize that marriage is used as an analogy to help us understand the relationship of Christ and the church. That's absolutely true. I'm not, not denying that in the least. But while our marriages do resemble Christ's union with the church, that isn't why God gave us marriage. Yeah, and I think that that is actually what we're trying to get at right here is, is that why God gave marriage? And if we look, you know, in Genesis, that's not what's given as the reason for why God gave marriage. We see it's not good for man to be alone. And Right. And what I think is important to remember about marriage is that marriage was given to Adam and Eve before the fall. And marriage is... Um, you know, a, a creation institution. So it's it's from the beginning. And all cultures have marriage of some sort. And lots of people who are married and who have good marriages aren't Christians, right? So there is something about marriage that goes beyond, well, not everyone gets married. All cultures throughout history have marriage of some kind. And non-Christians can have beautiful marriages that are uh, that are characterized by love and sacrifice, faithfulness, and God blesses faithfulness in marriage, even in the marriage of unbelievers. So it's, I think it's important that as we talk about the purpose of marriage, we look at it not just in the, con- in the context of as Christians, but as what did God want for us to get out of marriage? I'm thinking back to some of what we've talked about previously, where sometimes this overemphasis then makes... Um, especially for women, marriage, the end goal. Right. Um, you'll, you'll even hear people say it's a gospel issue because of what you were talking about. Right. Right. Which leaves out those of us or those in the church who are single uh, or widowed or um, they've been abandoned, right? The, the divorce. There are so many different ways that marriage, while it's a very good thing, is not the only thing for, for everybody in the church. Right, because it it is almost, and singles will even, or have told me this, that they feel like they're missing some aspect of the Christian life, that they cannot be a certain, like, um, acquire some part of, important part of the Christian life if they aren't married. And that's, another way that that happens is in an emphasis that people make, that they'll say that marriage is meant to make us holy, not happy. Right. And, you know, I get 
what people are trying to say when they say that. And I get what they are arguing against when they say that, you know, that there's so much in our society today that, you know, if you're not happy, right, God just wants you to be happy. And if you're not happy, then you can leave your spouse and run off with somebody else. And that's what that's what you should do, because God wants you to be happy, right. And so I understand pushing back against that, right, that that's, that's not a a godly biblical way to look at marriage and, and our relationships. But to go so far as to say that, God uses marriage to sanctify us, and that's the purpose, the purpose of marriage, that it's to sanctify us. It, again, it overemphasizes certain aspects of marriage. It doesn't address all the realities of marriage, and it hurts people in our churches who are not married because that tells them that they're missing out on sanctification because they couldn't really be sanctified unless they're married, right? That's, and I know that's not what they mean to do, but it's, it's what happens. It's the application that happens. Yeah, it, it ex- exactly that. And we think about uh, our confessions, our catechism, and when it says, what is sanctification? Mm-hmm. Um, there's nothing about marriage in there. And then when you get married, you'll reach the next level of sanctification. <laughs> right. It's not a thing. Right, no. And, you know, of course, God uses everything in our lives as part of our sanctification. Right. That's that's absolutely yeah, true. He uses absolutely. all of our relationships, all of our our life experiences are are part of how he works in us to sanctify us. But if you if you are not married, you're not missing out on sanctification. God will still work in your heart and work in your life through other san- situations. And you're not missing out on how to be a good Christian simply because you're not married. Right. It's not like you become a Christian. Now you get married so you can be sanctified. Right. You yeah. Know, like you said, you've reached the next level. Works. Right. Right. And some people are going to be single their whole lives. Um, and some people are going to be single where they had been married. Right. They, they will spend most of their lives not married. And that's just the reality for a lot of people. And it, we need to be careful about how we talk about marriage in that way. Um. You know, when I, we said that, uh, or when I mentioned that marriage is uh, a creation institute, it was given to us, given to Adam and Eve before the fall. When Adam and Eve, when God gave them in marriage to each other, they didn't need sanctification. Right? They were not sinners at that point. They did. They were already holy. So if marriage then is about being holy but not happy, then why did Adam and Eve need each other, right? What was Adam lacking that he needed Eve, right? So I think that our understanding of marriage needs to reflect that uh, in our discussions. I do agree that, that you know, you got to be careful thinking that marriage will make you happy. But there, but there are beautiful aspects of marriage that, um, that can um, result in you know, contentment, having, having someone as part of your life. But I remember my mom even said to me before I got married, she said, um, it's not your husband's, your husband's not responsible for your happiness. Well, Um, that's absolutely true. You know, my dad likes to say, you know, husbands are good, right? But my dad likes to say that, you know, he's just a guy, right? He's, and my dad's point was that he's not Christ for me, right? He is a man, and he's a good man, and I love my husband. You know, I'm not complaining. But I can't expect him to, to fulfill me in ways that only Christ can fulfill. 
But there are some views that do make a husband Christ. I mean, they really do. They do. Specifically, and I've I've been hearing this one a lot recently, is that a husband is prophet, priest, and king. And um, this is just so disturbing to me. Well, and a lot of it comes, we talk about, again, about misapplying or taking a truth and applying it in a way that's an overemphasis. Uh, they take the passage from Ephesians 5 that talks about husbands and wives and Christ and the church and, and the analogy there. And when it says that a husband should love his wife like Christ loved the church and that Christ gave himself up um, for his uh, for the bride and that he sanctifies her with the washing of the word, uh, that these, these things that Christ does for us, they say, see, then because husbands are like Christ and Christ does these things for the church, then husbands are called to do these things for their wives. But the problem is our husbands are not Christ and they can't do these things. They can't sanctify us. They can't... Um, make us more holy. Only Christ can do that. Only, only God can do that. You know, the spirit works in us to do these things uh, through our union with Christ and the work of the spirit. And it's a burden on husbands that they should not be asked to bear because they cannot be that for us. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I've thought about recently, because um, a gal had come to me and was in a church that was very, very patriarchy, where the husband even became the almost I want to say primary but it was almost like the only one that should be um directing his wife spiritually and in teaching the word I mean to the point where it was over and above the church well there's there are a couple different ways that this gets played out and one of them that you see a lot I think that it originated out of um ATI with uh, Bill Gothard, but it's the idea of the umbrella of protection, and there's an image that yes. you can see, right? <laughs> and so you have these layers of umbrellas that you have. Jesus is the umbrella over the husband, and husband's the umbrella then over the wife and the children, right? So you have these layers of protection, and you're only protected as long as you stay under your authority. And if you step out from under your authority, then you know you're not going to be protected anymore, and I mean, it, it's so contrary to everything that Scripture teaches about our relationship, uh, our relationship with our husband, our relationship with the church, our relationship with Christ, right? Christ is our priest. Christ is our mediator. And we don't need priests and mediators anymore to stand between us and God. That is Christ. That's what he does for us. And women, as well as men, have a direct relationship with Christ, uh, our children have or should have a direct relationship with Christ. It, their relationship is not mediated through us. Um, you know, some the quote says that God doesn't have grandchildren, right? He has children. So our, we all have a direct relationship through Christ with God. And we should not put mediators between us and God. It is inappropriate and it, it does damage. It's a spiritual abuse of, of women and children to do so. And it messes up the relationship that we should have with the um, elders and uh, leadership of our churches. Our elders and our other pastors and leaders of the church should have a direct relationship of uh, discipleship, of discipline, of um, of teaching and encouraging with each believer in the home, not 
through one person and then to the home, but directly, right? I should be able to go to my pastor and say, I have a question about this. I, d- I shouldn't have to go to my husband to have my husband ask the pastor that I have a question about this, you know? Yeah. And that's actually, I've heard that that goes on in churches, um, that, uh, one woman told me that she was not even allowed to, according to the, the leaders in her church to go right to her pastor and elders for counsel. Um, if her husband thought she needed some sort of counsel, he could go and request it. And it's um, so many concerns with that view. So one of the one of the reasons it's emphasized for marriage also is procreation. And I think even in reform circles, there's been a, some um, influence of the quiverful movement. Mm-hmm. If if people aren't familiar with it. Um, you know, you trust God with the size of your family. You might know the Duggars. They kind of um, have that same sort of belief system. You trust God with the size of your family. You have as many children as you possibly can. And so, again, we know that procreation is something good and is part of marriage, but they make it the most important aspect of marriage. Right. And, you know, I again, in terms of emphasis, you know, what we're talking about, you know, I know, Colleen, you and I would both agree that we, we affirm that God is the one who opens and closes the womb. Any children that we have are by his blessing. And we're thankful for that. We are thankful for our children. And of course, we believe that all children should be born within the bonds of marriage, right? And so, you know, we, we affirm that these are good things. And I would certainly say that procreation is a part of what marriage is for, or what many marriages are for. But I would not say that it's correct to say it's the only or the most important aspect of marriage. And that's, you know, besides what we see, what you said with like the quiverful and with some of of that movement, um, you know, it's a very Roman Catholic view of marriage that uh, even to limit intimacy to only times when you can can conceive that that's that's such a that procreation is such a uh, emphasis in marriage that all intimacy should be related to procreation. But when you look at what happens in our lives, if you look at um, marriages in scripture and marriages around us, procreation the the ability to have children is last for a very short time. But our marriages and our our lives together last a lot longer. And if a couple gets married and for whatever reason, one or the other of them is unable to have children, they're still married. Their marriage is not invalid because they can't bear children. Or um, couples who marry very late in life or much later in life when they're past the age of childbearing, their marriage is still a God-honoring marriage even though they can't bear children. And... You know, it's sad to me to see within the reform circles that there is this idea being passed around that the reason that Eve was created is that Adam needed help, but what he needed help with was he needed help having children. And so that's her Eve's primary purpose, a primary reason for existence, a woman's essential um, contribution is having children. And even some who have said that the essential that a woman's essential contribution to church is in bearing children. And I'm not diminishing 
the importance of having children. I, like I said, it's a great blessing. I am thankful for the children that I have, uh, and I'm thankful to raise them. But it's very limiting to women and to marriage to say that that's the reason for marriage. You know, I wanted to address something here real quick, because we do get questions sometimes in the Facebook group or by email where people will be, um, they'll hear about some of these quiverful mm-hmm. sort of ideas and they'll ask, is this, you know, the right way? Is this what we should do? And, you know, one thing we've talked about in this whole series so far is that there are aspects of um, our marriage, our family that are Christian liberty mm-hmm. and each couple needs to decide together. And it's so important to remember wisdom in all of that. And, you know, I have I have four living children, um, lost my oldest son's twin, and then um, I lost a baby in the second trimester between my third and fourth. And I had some complications with my third, with my miscarriage, and with my fourth to the point, um, really serious complications. And when I had to go back to the hospital after my fourth, my doctor said, having any more children would endanger your life. And my husband said, I'm not endangering your life, you know, and we were so grateful for the, for our four sons. Mm -hmm. But people came to me in reform circles and said that they said things to me like, you aren't trusting the Lord. But see, we were actually using wisdom, which the Lord calls us to. Yes. So it says it's a how, you know, one person might have eight children and one person might have one. You know, there's some liberty involved here on on how many children you have. Absolutely. Uh, And I think that you're right, that it's an issue of liberty and wisdom. And we should use both. Um, And we should be careful about using the resources that God has given us wisely. And by resources, you know, I'm not just talking about whatever money or income we have, but our health, our time, our abilities, these are all considerations that should be made. Uh, all things that should be taken into consideration when we're discussing these issues with our, with our families. And it really is one of those things that aside from you and your husband and whatever advice you get from medical or other personnel, it really is your decision and it's not up to other people to tell you how to do it. Yeah, and we think children are a wonderful thing. We think mm-hmm. um, abortion, for instance, is just an awful, awful, yes. horrible thing. Um, but, you know, what Rachel was saying, this is a discussion between a couple. And and I would even just speak to some of the younger women out there that are being bombarded with all kinds of different views. Just be careful because some of what you're being told does not come from Scripture. Right. Let's um, let's move on. And, you know, one of the things so fascinating to me, we actually talked about this when we had you on about um, about feminism Mm -hmm. and and that is how marriage has changed. And I know you've done so much research. I've only done a little bit of reading, but just maybe you could just talk really quick about historically how that's changed and then what even happened with kind of first wave feminism and um, and seeing marriage more as a companionship. One of the things that happened over time uh, after Christianity became the, you know, the major dominant religion within uh, Western Europe and the Middle Ages and the, the Catholic Church gained uh, power and uh, 
really the they were there was the church right so as the catholic church became the church in western europe over time there developed ideas about marriage as we talked about that marriage being about procreation and it was taught from the church that it being celibate being single um, and dedicating yourself either as uh, into the church either as a uh, a priest, as a monk, as a nun, that these were ways that were more God-honoring than getting married. That uh, if you just couldn't possibly be celibate, then it was okay to get married and have a family. But your marriage and having uh, intimacy, should, again, should only be about procreation. And, and you should be very careful that and, and understand that you, what you were choosing was uh, was a lesser choice, less God-honoring. Um, but after, over time, through the uh, Reformation, as the Reformers began to talk about marriage, they they brought up older biblical ideas about marriage and the importance of companionship. And you see it, it I love um, the wording from the, the very... The, the very oldest Book of Common Prayer from the Anglican Church. It, it's just, it's a truly beautiful service. If anyone has watched movies or especially like in the, uh, I think it's the BBC's Pride and Prejudice has this in the scene. And they, they talk about the wording in the liturgy talks about the reasons that marriage was ordained. And it gives three reasons. One is for the procreation of children. Right? One is uh, a remedy against sin, right? So that, um, there's a place for intimacy. And the last one is that marriage was ordained, and the quote is, for the mutual society help comfort and comfort that the one ought to have of the other, both in prosperity and adversity. And that is such a beautiful picture of marriage, that the mutual society help and comfort. And you see it, and this emphasis in many of the reformers and uh, the church fathers that followed after that. Uh, Matthew Henry says that a wife should be looked upon not as a servant, but as a companion to the husband, uh, with whom he should freely converse and take sweet counsel as with a friend, and in whose company he should take delight more than in any others. Uh, Luther said that woman is necessary not only for multiplying the human race, but also for the companionship, help, and protection of life. Um, he also said that when Adam, uh, when Adam uh, is shown Eve, he says that this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, that what Adam said there most beautifully expresses the glad surprise and exulting joy of a noble spirit which had been seeking this delightful meat companion of life in bed, a companionship full not only of love, but of holiness. Um, Calvin, too, says that Adam indicates that something had been wa- wanting to him. And when he says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, he's now saying that I have obtained a suitable companion. That that emphasis, companionship, friendship in marriage, uh, the reformers emphasized that marriage was not just about having children and avoiding sexual sin, but it was also about uh, companionship, that women weren't just objects for having babies or for providing uh, sexual release, but a wife was meant to be a husband's help and comfort and vice versa. 
And they also emphasized that being married and serving God as a husband or wife was just as important as being celibate and serving God in the church. Genesis 2, it talks, I think it, when it says it's not good to be, uh, not good for a man to be alone, I think Mm -hmm. it really fits into all of those quotes that you just um, had there. There is a companionship. And one thing I think of too, in regards to the companionship and even some of the older couples that I've known, they may go through, um, they may get older, the kids are no longer home. Um, they may go through health problems, which affects their physical relationship, but that companionship is always present or it ought be Mm -hmm. in marriage. We have, we're not alone. We have that person that is, um, that does life with us. And you see that in other passages in scripture, uh, you see it in the Song of Songs, where um, he says, this is my beloved and this is my friend. In Malachi, uh, it says, the wife of your youth calls her your companion. Uh, you see it, I love the, the wording, after, um, after uh, Sarah dies and Isaac marries. It says that Isaac found comfort in Rebekah and was comforted after his mother's death. You know, it's it's just a beautiful picture again and again through scripture of the companionship that we should have in marriage. Yeah, it's that person that walks through life with us. And if you think about the difficult things that you go through, I think my husband's lost both of his parents. And, you know, going through each of those where I walked with him through that. And I think of how much he's done that with me. And that that is such a beautiful picture. And that was, you mentioned about the first wave feminists, what we talked about in the, the feminist, uh, the episode on feminism, is that one of the things that first wave feminists wanted was for uh, equality, again, not sameness, that's not what they're saying, but equality between men and women so that men and women could be true companions in marriage. They wanted marriage to be not based on um you know, a particular need to have children or a need to have heirs or um, the economic benefits, but for men and women to see each other as um, as a person who could, could, like you said, walk through life together, someone who would be that kind of, um, of, of a real partner in life. One of the purposes, too, is to build up, encourage um work and serve together. I wanted to read a quote from your book. Mm -hmm. One way that, or actually let me read a couple of them. One way that believers serve each other in marriage is by building each other up and encouraging each other to grow in grace and faith. And that, that is something that should be happening in, in marriage. And, Mm -hmm. and then uh, when we focus on service, husbands will be encouraged to love their wives sacrificially and to put their wives needs before their own. Wives will be encouraged to submit to their husbands and to love and respect them by putting their husband's needs first. Focusing on our spouse's needs discourages us from trying to manipulate or dominate them. And that's that's another quote from your book. Right. What I wanted to get across is, you know, when I talk about beyond authority and submission, the themes that I talk about uh, of being as if equally important, that authority and submission are important, but other equally important themes are unity, interdependence, and service. And you, know, you see that we talked about last week in uh, in work that uh, men and women are united in 
in their creation and they are given uh, tasks together to work. And, you know, we're interdependent and we should serve each other. And those three things make a big difference in how we view marriage as well as uh, how we look at other relationships between men and women. And, you know, obviously it's true that one of the things that God called us uh, through marriage is to have children, but it wasn't the only thing, but he also called us to work together and work side by side. And, you know, another thing I say in the book is that because of the fall and the effects of sins, we work and serve together by the sweat of our bows, brows, beating back entry one day at a time. And that's what we're made to do as um, husbands and wives. We need each other. We need to support each other. We have strengths and weaknesses that we balance in each other. And we need someone who is fighting alongside us against uh, the dangers of the world, against uh, sin and the effects of the fall. And we need to, to serve each other and love each other. So one of the things that can happen is is making marriage an idol. And I did a, a book group, and I it doesn't really matter what book it is, but there was a section in there that talked about not making marriage an idol. And there were some women, you can't make a good thing an idol. Well, guess what? You absolutely can make a good thing an idol. Even good things can be be idols. So what what are what are some of the things that contribute to the danger of making marriage an idol? I think it's it's the Tim Keller quote and I'm paraphrasing, but it's that it, an idol is when you make a good thing an ultimate thing. And I think that that really encapsulates well what happens. So when you make marriage out to be the gospel, right? So that living out your in your marriage you're living out a picture of the gospel or that getting married and having a a uh, complementarian, uh, appropriate marriage is uh, is the gospel. You know those those are ways that make that can make marriage an idol. So that then, if you're not married, then you can't really uh, live out the gospel the way that a married couple can. Or if marriage is about making us holy, then if you're not married, you can't really be sanctified. And these are ways that you know when when marriage becomes you know, the ultimate and highest calling for a woman, it becomes an idol because then you expect that that will fulfill you and you're looking to that to fulfill you instead of looking to your relationship with Christ. And it is, it undermines the gospel and it undermines um, how we share the gospel with others when we tell them and expect them to believe that marriage is the only way or the, the most important way for us to live out the gospel among others. It it almost makes me think of, you know, different levels of Christians. It almost sets it up that way. So right. if you're a certain, if you're married, then you've kind of achieved the next level of, of being a Christian. Right. Um, you know, one of the things that I quote in the book that I really appreciated, I read an article by Brian Tallman on Ligonier, and he talked about bringing marriage back to earth, and that we have these, these, um, unrealistic expectations for what marriage will do and be. And what he said was, maybe it's time we recognize that we are members of Christ and culture, and just maybe in bringing marriage back to earth, we might come to realize that marriage really isn't that hard. We might just find that God will bless our marriages and use them to build and shape the culture and as a stage upon which to magnify his grace. And what I really appreciated about that is, 
it takes the weight off of us as uh, husbands and wives that we can live our lives and work our marriages out in without being so overwhelmingly concerned with how our marriage presents the gospel to the world. Now, we shouldn't do anything that distract, detracts from the gospel, right? We, our lives should reflect, um, you know, godly behavior, and we should live in ways that honor God. But we, should, we shouldn't weight marriage with such significance that it is so equivalent to the gospel that that is the way we share the gospel with others. And I think some of these things that are taught, um, and I've talked to young women who say then they get married and it's almost crushing because they have these expectations of exactly what it's supposed to be. And for, you know, anyone who's been married any length of time, you get married and you have to work together and work through things and, and find your way. And so if you set up marriage as having these, you know, specific most important purposes, then it's very disappointing once you get married. Absolutely. So what does marriage, what should marriage look like? Um, You know, we know from, you know, Ephesians 5, we we see um, a husband is to love his wife and a wife is to submit to her husband. That's not all that's in that passage. But what should, what does marriage look like? According to scripture. Well, I do think that, um, I really think that the Book of Common Prayer gets the the emphasis right about the, the varied, the three purposes for marriage. And that, you know, it is about marriage was given to us as an institution so that we would have children. And, you know, God knew that we needed a, a proper way for us to um, express uh, intimacy within the bounds of marriage. And he knew that we needed each other and we needed companionship. And so as believers, I think that we need to remember that we are brothers and sisters in Christ and that the, that our uh, relationship with Christ and with each other will mean that we are um, working together to raise our families and to serve the Lord and that we were on the same side. I think a lot of times, especially with the, the emphasis that we see on on biblical manhood and womanhood and uh, how it's defined, that there is a lot of antagonism that's unnecessary in how the relationships are described and, and trying to enforce submission and um, emphasize, overemphasize uh, authority so that you know we, we do everything just the right way. And the other thing that happens is then that there is a, um, and I'm talking about unrealistic expectations, there is a certain expectation that's put out that marriages, Christian marriages, will all look around about the same. But we can see that they don't, right? That we have, each of us are individuals, and as we get married, we our marriages are as individual as we are. Um, you know, Colleen and, and her husband have a, a God-honoring marriage, but it doesn't look the same as my marriage with my husband, right? That there are differences in because we're different people. And so the Bible gives us these basic guidelines about um, how we're to love and serve and submit and to lead. But he's given us all different gifts and different needs, and that will 
change what our marriages look like. As we talked about last week, you know, our season of life and our responsibilities will change how our marriages look. And husbands and wives will have to make decisions about how their marriage works in ways that are uh, a reflection of Christian liberty and wisdom like we've been talking about. So the questions about, you know, who should do certain things, that it seems to revolve a lot around, you know, is it, should I, as a wife, should I be responsible for the finances or not? Who should do the dishes? Who cooks the meals? Who uh, takes care of the cars? But all of these things um, are areas in which we should be fairly flexible. Uh, and I think that, you know, again, the, the, the emphasis should be on wisdom and, and the liberty that we have to make these decisions is within the bounds of the guidelines that God, Scripture gives us. In Michael Horton's article mm-hmm. uh, called Muscular Christianity, which we've quoted before, and I think I've even quoted it a long time ago on the podcast too, beyond Scripture there is godly wisdom and Christian liberty. Biblical principles focus on what it means to live in Christ by his word and spirit. And even in those few passages that speak directly to men and women, there will be legitimate diversity in application. Mm -hmm. I love that. And that's exactly what you're talking about is each marriage is going to look different. Um, I think of when my, when we first got married, my husband worked second shift. So he was uh, working two to 11. And so our lives looked very different than someone whose husband was working nine to five. And it looked different because our personalities are different and because of our season in life and whether we had children and how many and, and so many different things that will, um, there will be legitimate diversity in application. Right. And we should be careful not to judge each other according to those decisions. What works for us is not necessarily what's going to work for someone else. And unless we're looking at something that's blatant sin, right, when we, we, we should address blatant sin in each other as believers. But unless we're talking about those issues, we should have a lot, a lot of room, leave a lot of room for grace. I have seen some even silly discussions on the things that church discipline should happen for <laughs> that are really under, yes. under liberty. Yes. So, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. You know, if you go on social media in some of these groups, there's always asked, how does it look for a wife to submit? Mm-hmm. Rarely, how does it look for a husband to love his wife as Christ loves the church? But this is something that Scripture says. I was going to say, except I have seen discussions that say, well, it absolutely does not mean that a husband is supposed to put the needs of his wife first. They've, they, I have read discussions about how that that is absolutely inappropriate according to some people and it seems a shame to me that we get so tied up about you know what it means to be in charge that we forget that what Christ calls us to is service and that includes our husbands our our husbands are called to service as wives we are called to service and we should be much less concerned as scripture says uh, as as Jesus told his disciples, we should not lead like the Gentiles lead, right? It's the non-believers lead and, right, by lording it over others. But we should be willing to be like Christ and wash the feet of those people who we love, and the people even to wash people wash the feet of people we don't particularly love because we've been called to serve them, right? So that our service is about, or our lives are about service and about serving God through serving those around us, and. It's not about, we talk about um, 
authority and submission in marriage. It's, it's not about husbands enforcing submission or lording his authority over his wife. He's called to serve her the way Christ served the church and loved the church through service. And sometimes almost seems like the wife is, is seen as another child. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the way that that authority is portrayed. And really, um, husbands are called to a, a sacrificial um, servanthood. Mm-hmm. And so this is the big one. It happens. You've probably seen it, Rachel. Everyone wants to know what submission looks like. Um, and yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, the point that I make in, in the book is that as wives, we are called to submit to our husbands, not to every man, not to any other husband, but to to our own husband. So it is a, a limited submission in that way. It is also qualified. We should never submit to um, sinful requests. We should never submit if we are asked to do things that are against our conscience, right? That's God alone is the Lord of the conscience, as the confession says. But um, submission is about, and I, I describe it as the voluntary submission of an equal it's out of respect for for your husband and in recognition that our ultimate Lord is Christ. And I have had a lot of pushback on calling it voluntary submission because people hear voluntary and they hear voluntary in the sense of not required, which is a meaning of voluntary. Um, the meaning of voluntary that I'm using and that I think is appropriate in this discussion is it is an intentional Um, act of the will. I am choosing to submit to my husband. I'm choosing to obey the Lord through my submission to my husband because I want to honor God and what he's called me to do and I want to honor my husband. But that is not an enforced submission. I am not a puppet being required to submit in the sense of I can't do anything but submit and that's why I use voluntary. I'm submitting to the man who is the, the husband that I chose, not someone who was assigned to me, right? This is my husband, my choosing. And I am his equal in creation, and I'm his equal before Christ. But I'm laying down some of my um, rights, if you will, in order to honor my husband by submitting to him. And And I think it's actually important that you put voluntary in there there's almost a picture where um i i think we have a beautiful picture in ephesians Mm -hmm. 5 of a husband loving his wife and a wife submitting to her husband but sometimes we get a warped view of that Mm -hmm. um and so i want to talk about what submission is not because i even if you see conversations with an egalitarian for instance who thinks any form of submission is some sort of patriarchy and bad. Um, It's not micromanaging. Right. And I think some people think that's what it is, where a husband's just, um, like you said, pulling some puppet strings and micromanaging his wife and telling her what to do. You know, when a husband is loving his wife as Christ loved the church, I know that, you know, if my husband decides something that maybe... I'm not thrilled with. I know that he really does believe that's the best decision for our family, that he is, that he loves me. Mm -hmm. And so 
it's not, it doesn't feel like, oh no, I have to submit to my husband. Right. Um, but he's also not micromanaging me. Um, controlling would be another one that it is not. Right. Um, I would say too, it's not catering to preferences. Right. Now we want to do things that are kind for each other. And that often means like, you know, if, if I know that my husband likes to have dinner uh, early in the evening, out of kindness, I have dinner, we have dinner ready when it's early in the evening instead of waiting till till later in the day. You know, that, that's a kindness to each other, right? But it doesn't mean that whatever the husband's preferences in the house are the way all the, the way the house runs, right? It's, that's not, that's about, you know, taking one person and making what they want the law for the house. And that's, that's really not what submission is supposed to be about. It's not that kind of, of, um, it's not that kind of relationship. And the husbands are told to do something, which is love their wives as Christ loved the church. The, the wives are told to do something, which is submit to your husbands. But it's, I think that there's almost this idea where a husband is called to, um, Lord over his wife to make sure she submits. But that's not what the husband is told to do in that passage. Right. He's told to love her. And they use, it's often used as a, um, uh, or, or described that submission is like, like a military rank and file, right? So you have your commanding officer and you have your subordinates. And I mean, there are aspects in ways that you can talk about uh, authority and submission. There are certain relationships where that might be more what it's like. But in marriage, it's not the picture that we get, right? You, you see with, especially in Ephesians 5, with Christ and his love for the church, Christ never stood on what he could have demanded from us, right? He, he didn't stand on his rights. He didn't stand on his privileges as being uh, the head of the church. He gave himself up sacrificially, right? He served the needs of the church and loves us as, as his bride. And, you know, that emphasis makes all the difference in the world in how a relationship works, that when we're both putting each other first, right? Where a husband is loving his wife and putting her needs first and a, a wife is submitting to her husband and putting his needs first, that that mutual service makes for a completely different kind of, of relationship and marriage than trying to say, you know, sitting your wife down and saying, okay, I noticed that the dishes haven't been get, getting done quite the way I like them. And here's how it should be. And if you don't start doing it this way, you know, then I'm going to have to call the elders in and have them tell you that you should be doing it the way I tell you to do it. That's, that's not the picture that you get in scripture of marriage. Well, especially in view of what we've talked about with companionship. Mm -hmm. So, well, thank you everyone for joining us. Um, we will be, uh, we do, I, I kind of think of this as a whole series, which we'll add one more to mm -hmm. and then be starting on some, some other topics. We have a special guest next week that I'm excited to have on. Um, so, well, thank you for joining us. We'll see you next week.